Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news as well as insight and analysis into all the subjects you're talking about in football. I mean, McGarry, with me as always, is the transfer guru, Duncan Castles. Today, we'll be bringing you uh, exclusive news on Manchester United, West Ham United, as well as Juventus and Wolves, and much more. I'm delighted to say uh, that we're starting, Duncan, with a question from a young man called Sankul Patak, who uh, lives in Mumbai in India representing, of course, our multinational listenership, which, of course, we value very much. And Sankal has asked us, how do the transfer gurus get the insights about transfers that are going to happen way before anybody else? Does somebody from the clubs tell you something, you know, as a snitch, he asks, or do they get paid for this? <laughs> <laughs> both, both of which I think we can answer no <laughs> to each of those questions. But Sankal, we're very grateful for your question. And uh, Duncan, maybe you should start off with, uh, yeah, how these things come about. Yeah, i just say thanks to Sankal for the question and thanks um, for being such a loyal follower of the Transfer Window podcast. Um, and uh, all the best with uh, your recovery. It's a good question. It's actually a question that we get a lot on Twitter and we get people asking, how can you get stories from these clubs when you are critical of some of the things these clubs do? Surely no one in a football club would speak to a reporter who says negative things at times about their club. And I think it's just a misunderstanding of the way the world of, of football works and the idea that... Um, Football clubs are a unitary entity where everyone is on the same page uh, and everyone is always cooperating with each other. Um, actually, they're very complex organizations. As we know, big football clubs these days turn over huge amounts of money. There's massive amounts of money involved in transfers, in success on the field, on player contracts. And essentially, one of the big areas of competition for any footballer um, and any football professional comes from within his own environment he's working in. So there are tensions and there are conflicts, kind of things we report on the podcast on a regular basis. They also generally have contracts which prevent them from saying publicly what they would want to say um, on many occasions um, and can be held in breach of contract if they say things that damage the club's image. But the message needs to go out and um, a good way to put a message out can be to pass it on to a journalist you trust. And, and that would be one of the sources um, we use. I mean, myself, I've been doing this for almost 20 years, Ian, you're even longer than that. Um, I can tell you that I have never paid anyone for information in football, for a story, for an interview ever, um, nor have I been paid by anyone for putting information out other than the people who publish the podcast, publish the articles. Um, so it's, it's about, I think our reporting is about developing relationships, talking to the people involved in the sport, thinking about what might happen 
asking questions and uh, and relaying it to you guys um, through articles and, and on this podcast. Wishing you well with regards to your health and also thanking you for your uh, loyalty to the Transfer Window podcast. Um, my experience is very similar to Duncan's with regards to how we get stories. It's how you build relationships uh, with people inside clubs and agents uh, and in the football community. Uh, and then, of course, there is a case to say that sometimes uh, people want news to get out there and therefore they're willing to give information. Um, but at the same time, um, the most valuable stories are the ones that they don't want people to know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, those are the ones that uh, that come via different sources. So uh, uh, that's how we do it at Sanko. And uh, I'm very pleased to say that um, over the last few days, uh, our story about Mino Raiola's commission uh, pending on um, Erling Haaland and for his dad as well has made global news uh, with regards to uh, the amount of money that could be paid, uh, leading Raiola himself to uh, talk about the uh, possibility of that transfer. Uh, we also um, broke the story about David De Gea being offered to European football clubs. And again, that has been brought up this week. And here we are in April. So if you want to know the news before it becomes news, the Transfer Window podcast is a place to be. And thankfully, we're very pleased that you are one of our very loyal and faithful listeners, uh, as well as thousands of others um, who depend upon us to bring that news to you before it becomes news. Good uh, that you mentioned uh, the Mino Raiola's conversations with uh, leading football clubs that we talked about on, on the last podcast and the, the indication from his camp that during those conversations over what is likely to be the most expensive transfer of the summer, um, that no uh, conversations were had about wages, about um, the cost of the transfer and more importantly about the commission um, that uh, that was briefed out from uh, Raiola's camp to much mirth I think um, to the people he'd been talking to and to the people in football who've watched uh, how he's handled other uh, deals in the past um, we'll see what happens with the commission but it's uh, quite amusing to think that uh, he's going around football clubs talking about expensive transfers and the, and the cost of the transfer and the cost of the salary would not be discussed in those meetings i suspect uh, duncan knowing what we know about mino and most agents to be fair that those um, particular issues would have been the first that were addressed in those particular conversations with regards to any potential transfer. Interesting also that Pep Guardiola uh, described uh, Haaland as uh, an amazing player. Uh, look at the statistics, he said, for a 20-year-old uh, in terms of the numbers of goals, etc., etc. Um, I think indicating, even though uh, Guardiola tends not 
to want to talk about players at other clubs before uh, City uh, start their interest. But clearly, with Sergio Aguero leaving this summer, then um, they must have an interest in Haaland, regardless of his price. Yeah, look, look, a couple of things we should say on that. One is congratulations to Mino Raiola that he managed to have a conversation with Barcelona in the morning in Spain. Um, that uh, video footage of him arriving in Barcelona was was released to the media very quickly. <laughs> congratulations to Mino Raiola, seriously. And, and then still managed to have a conversation with Real Madrid in the afternoon. Um, as one uh, prominent person in football said to me uh uh, after when we were discussing that this week, he said, "If I'd been at Real Madrid, I would have called um, Mino the moment that footage came out and cancelled uh, my meeting with with him." Um, it's just a, such an obvious play and a and a, and a manipulation, but uh, I think that's a, a testimony to the quality of um, product. And I think for Raúl, it really is a kind of product that he has control of at present, that he can manage to have those two meetings with the two most prominent clubs in Spain and have uh, have the first element of the first one televised before he, he starts the second one. Um, the statistics on Haaland, uh, some, it was some very interesting reporting on on how his goal scoring compares to the other um, top scorers in, in Europe this season. Um, and how he does it from so few touches of the ball, um, less than half as many touches and matches as Cristiano Ronaldo or Kylian Mbappe this season, not even a quarter of Messi's touches on the ball. Um, if you look at the top six scorers in European football, so that's Lewandowski, Ronaldo, Messi, Haaland, Mbappe and Andre Silva at Frankfurt, um, Haaland has the fewest tackles, and the fewest interceptions of anyone in those six. He completes the fewest passes, just under 10 passes per game. So he is a very, um, as we've said, he's a very distinct kind of striker who is almost completely focused on scoring goals and scoring goals himself. And, you know, go. we'll keep referring to this, but go back to the podcast we did earlier this year where we said that Dortmund are happy to sell him this season because the, their analysis is that the team is poorer with him in it as a whole. And that is one of the reasons why they're struggling to qualify for the Champions League, despite the fact that Haaland is putting these ridiculous numbers up um, on an individual level. And um, I, again, very interesting that Guardiola is talking about him. Interesting that he's high on Manchester City's list. Interesting to see if... if they do that deal and you have to say that financially, despite what Guardiola was saying this week, they have the greatest firepower to be able to pay the, the commission, the salary um, and the transfer fee that's going to be involved in doing that deal. Well, if they bring him in, Guardiola can turn them into a rounded player who improves Manchester City um, and and, be, and turns into the, the type of player we're talking about as that you know head-to-head candidate with Kylian Mbappe to be successor to Ronaldo and Messi as the, as the world's number one player. And interesting also, Duncan, um, from what you've said and what you reported regarding Borussia Dortmund's attitude towards Haaland. As someone once famously said, there's no I in team and... Uh, that's exactly what Haaland seems to believe that there is. Um, 
I don't know if you saw the footage, everyone is listening, but when he trained uh, at the Etihad Stadium um, ahead of the tie against Manchester City, he described the stadium as beautiful and made it quite clear that that might be a new home for him with regards to his next move. And as we reported on the podcast last week, um, it looks like Mina Raiola has played a blinder using Borussia Dortmund as a staging post for Haaland's next transfer uh, and allowing the uh, payment of commission to both him and his father, Alf Inge Haaland, with, uh, in terms of the next move that Erling Haaland makes. But Duncan, Manchester United is a very interesting uh, subject at the moment. Um, Jesse Lingard is a player who's been rejected by Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, sent out on loan to West Ham United, uh, has proved himself to be uh, something of a scoring sensation, uh, none more so than last weekend. Uh, and it seems that uh, though the player is under contract, and of course you will give us the details of that contract, United are prepared to play a waiting game because it's our information that they will wait until Lingard is named or not in England's Euro 2020 squad uh, this summer. And if he is, then they'll wait again so that the possibility of his increase in value uh, gives them an advantage in terms of income. And therefore, he will be allowed to leave the club despite his very impressive form at uh, the Olympic Stadium. And that would be the case regardless uh, of who United try to buy. Uh, is this fool's gold, Duncan, in the words of the great Stone Roses song? Or is it the case that Lingard simply isn't good enough for Manchester United? Well, he's, he's on a sensational run of form, six goals and eight Premier League games for West Ham United during this loan period. That, that's one of uh, his most productive periods in the entire career. Uh, he had a, a very good spell, I think, in the 2017-18 season. Um, but his total return for that was eight goals from 33 Premier League games, which is his best ever. Uh, in his career uh, last season just one from 22 under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and very much um, sent to the periphery of the squad um, you know, one of the few players I think that we've seen Solskjaer uh, berating from the touchline um, in an aggressive manner and, and, and saw shifted out of the squad basically it replaced in terms of a transfer with Donny van de Beek coming in um, I think for Manchester United, it would be very difficult to reintegrate him into the squad because they are so packed with players in the area of the field that he specialises in. I think his, his preferred position is playing just behind the forwards. They already have a battle there between Bruno Fernandes, um, which Fernandes is one, and Paul Pogba, who both prefer that position. Donny van de Beek also prefers that position. Um, 
so they, they can afford to let him go. And the form he has at West Ham United is allowing them to take a, a, a decent transfer fee for him in the summer. Um, and as you say, if he if he is picked for England, if he does well, European Championship, the exposure that gets should help them increase the money. He only has one more year left on contract. Um, they've already taken up the option on um, the last deal he signed with the club. So there, I think there's a limit to how much money they can get. And um, I think it's because of COVID, because the clubs they are selling him to are likely to be the ones off the Champions League places. I mean, West Ham United is the tier of club you would expect to be going for Lingard. That's the kind of club that players move to after they have been let go by Manchester United, unless they go to Inter. But uh, Inter struggling themselves <laughs> for for cash at the moment, despite their um, no, success. Sarcasm there, Duncan. In in Italy, <laughs> um, but I think that tier of clubs is the one that's going to have more problems in this market. I think the biggest clubs are are managing to put together enough resource to be able to do one substantial deal in the summer it seems to be the strategy is to get at least one substantial deal in and then shift around other players the tier down i think are having to wait to see if one of their players get picked up by the biggest clubs to see what kind of money they're going to have to spend so that makes it more complex um to capitalize on the deal but you know the last what's for sure is the last few months and Lingard's performances for West Ham are have substantially increased the realistic income that Manchester United can take from a player who um, you know we hear a lot about Solskjaer's man management um, and how good he is uh, at improving players Lingard is not an example of that as we said Lingard has gone in the opposite direction um, but that's, that's, that's been very significant, Duncan, for me, that um, because um, I witnessed Lingard on a, a loan at Brighton, my local club, and many people said, uh, both coaches and people around the club, that he was never going to be an international player. And um, he kind of fulfilled that destiny for the last three years at Manchester United. Um, but now because he scored some goals and obviously it was a spectacular goal um, he scored on Sunday, um, a solo effort, uh, people are saying, oh, he must be included in Gareth Southgate's squad for the Euros. And I'm kind of sceptical about that, to be honest, because I trust the people who've told me that it, it, he's not long-term, that kind of player. Um, so it is interesting. And also, he's not that young anymore either. So for a, a player who had huge potential um, is now playing quite well for three months, doesn't suggest to me that that will um, see through the test of time. Yeah, he'll be 29 in December. Um, 29? See, there you go. I mean, that's... Which, which, so this is the last time you're going to get a transfer fee for him and, and you know, 
okay, you, you have the argument about games played and he hasn't played as many games in his career as, as others of his age, so he could have longevity because of that. Look, what you're saying reminds me of a conversation I had with Manchester United coaching staff when he was in the middle of that purple spell in the 2017-18 season and asking them how, how good a player they thought he was and, and whether he could be fundamental to a type, the kind of team they were trying to build to win a Premier League title again and to have a chance of winning the Champions League again. And, and the answer was, you know, this is probably as good as it gets. He's, he is, he works hard, he's committed, he's got a good attitude. Um, most of the time he's flexible and he can play in different positions, but probably doesn't have anything beyond this. He's not elite level was, was kind of the message that was coming from that. And you have to say that what's happened subsequently would, would back that up. A, a good player, at times a very good player, but not a top player. He reminds me, Duncan, of um, Andros Townsend and Wilfred Zaha in terms of uh, the inconsistency of performance, but the sporadic burst of talent that sometimes comes out and people say, wow, he's amazing. And I just don't get it. I don't see it in Lingard. I don't see it in Townsend. I don't see it in Zaha either. Look, I think players like that are... are Zaha obviously decided to not to play for England in the, in the end, but they're handicapped by being English. So whenever they perform at a very high level, even in just one game, if they score a great goal. But if, if they do that for two or three games, they get a level of attention that they would not get if they were of a different nationality. Uh, and they get talked about as, as a solution for England. Um, and, I, and I think it's difficult for those kind of players to control the expectation around their game because they're being told they're better than their performances actually um, merit. Uh, and I, I think you, in that circumstance, you, you kind of have to applaud Lingard because he has been sent to the, the periphery of the squad. Um, when he is in many ways a fit to that cultural reboot that Manchester United's PR story is of, of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, use domestic players, use academy players from Manchester United, um, he ticks a lot of boxes for the cultural reboot, but actually he's the one of the ones who's been most damaged by it in, in terms of his personal career. Um, yet he has worked and kept himself in good condition and he's been given the opportunity at West Ham United and he's taken the opportunity. So I think that is a testimony to the kind of things that the you know, Manchester United coaching staff were saying about him in 2017-18, that mentally they liked him as a player. Uh, and you know it would be easy for him to sit back and and complain about Solskjaer uh, and then you know just and let him, let himself leave push United to let him go at a cheap price in, in the summer but he hasn't done that he's he's gone and when he had the opportunity to play football he's played football very well as fellow Scotsman I'm sure we're um amused by uh, David Moyes' phrase when he said that um, he was giggling at the idea of West Ham playing Champions League football next season, having moved in to the top four 
as a result of weekend results. Um, and we applaud him for that. Uh, one of the Glasgow School uh, of Coaching who have uh, succeeded and performed well. And um, we do wish him well as far as the last part of the season is concerned. Duncan, you've dug up an interview with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, though, with regards to um, what he said uh, maybe four years ago and what he's been saying now um, with regards to Manchester United, which makes for a very interesting reading uh, in terms of uh, the current circumstances of United. Yeah, it's actually Manchester United supporters um, who have uh, dug up this interview and, and, and flagged it up to me, but it was ahead of the FA Cup final in 2016. Um, Solskjaer being asked what he thought about the opportunity to, to win an FA Cup uh, and talking about how it was important uh, for the players because we, um, and he was at Molda at the time, Remember, we need to remember how to win again. It's a while ago now, so start lifting trophies will give us the hunger again to get back to winning ways. Um, then next question from the interviewer was, Louis van Gaal has been saying that expectations are too high at Manchester United, um, that uh, the expectation that they should be competing for the Premier League title was unfair on them. Um, what do you think about that? And his response was, it was a disaster. Um, when I was there, being number two, I being number two in the Premier League. Uh, so I don't agree. Um, now we're talking top four. We couldn't end second without the season being a failure. So no standards at Man United should be high. We should be aiming for trophies. Um, we should be winning the league and even challenging for cups. And, uh, and then asked again, whether it was acceptable to lower the standards because there was more competition in English football than the period in which he had been at the club. And he said, I don't think so. I think if you lower your own standards, you end up 10, 15, 20 years from now, ending up with no trophies. So it's back on the horse for me. Now, we, we've said, we've talked previously about what Solskjaer was saying when Manchester United got to second place in 2018, how he was critical of that and saying they're back in the Champions League, but I don't think any of the Man United supporters or ex-players or players are happy with a second place where it should be top spot. And then contrasting it with what he said since he's been manager of the club, um, almost been there as long as the, as the previous manager now, um, no trophies yet. In fact, Solskjaer himself is on a run of no trophies in 22 attempts at three different clubs in three different divisions. Last one in 2013. Um, he has Manchester United now on their longest run without a trophy in 31 year, years. Um, and he has been talking, I mean, he went into this season saying that third place was the target. Um, he recently talked about trophies being an ego thing. Um, the contrast with the way he talked before he was manager in the club and, and, and arguing that second place would be a disaster and that you need to win trophies to remember how to win again. It's just, it's fascinating how his public position on the performances expected of Manchester United is so radically different when he actually is the man in charge of changing things 
and giving, deciding which players should play, which players should be brought in, what tactics to use, which substitutions to, to make in a game. Um, and when he was on the byline talking about other managers doing the job. It's certainly a contrast, that's for sure. And speaking of which, the Lord Lucan of management um, may well be about to reappear. And of course, I'm talking about Max Allegri, Duncan, um, who has disappeared uh, effectively. Uh, thankfully, uh, there are no murder victims involved, but um, except maybe Juventus's title bid. And uh, you reckon uh, he may about to make a dramatic return? My information is that um, Andrea Agnelli is considering bringing him back to the club and, and the idea has been floated um, that he should come in and uh, take over from Andre Pirlo. Um, it, Pirlo has been a disastrous appointment for Juventus, probably a predictably disastrous appointment given he had no coaching experience when he was given control of one of the biggest clubs in European football. They're currently fourth in Serie A, 12 points behind Inter, who are going to win the title. Um, they're now in danger of missing out in the Champions League. And in fact, they play um, Napoli tomorrow night with Napoli on the same points as them. So were they to lose that game, they will be in, in serious danger. It's it's not just about um, Pirlo. They also are very unhappy. There's a story we did in the podcast months ago with sports director Fabio Paratici, who's out of contract at the end of the season and looks very much likely to be replaced. Juventus have already approached potential candidates to take over from him. Um, the, the turning to Allegri is fascinating because Agnelli did not want to sack Allegri. That was a decision of Paratici and Pavel Nedved. And, and he actually publicly said that he had handed over and had faith in the sporting department decision to, to move Allegri out and bring in, in that case, Maurizio Sarri in as the new coach. Um, he retained Allegri as a sign of um, his trust and relationship with him on contract for a year. So Allegri was paid his full 7.5 million net salary last season. Um, Allegri, as, as we've told you, has been looking for one of the biggest jobs in European football. Um, he expected to be back in work this season. It's gone on longer than he had hoped for. COVID, uh, which has stopped clubs from, from sacking coaches, has, I think, limited the opportunities available to him. There's an interest there to see whether Manchester United change. Um, there's definitely an interest, I think even more of an interest to see if Real Madrid change and he has a good relationship with Florentino Perez. But I'm told that he has not dismissed the possibility of going back to Juventus. What would be required for him though is a degree of control over recruitment at the club um, that he didn't have previously. So if he goes back there, he wants to have more say over which players are moved out, which players come in. Um, he doesn't want to have to work with people like Paratici. Um, and yeah, I, I think this is very interesting because we, we've said on the podcast that, that Allegri is desperate to get back to work. He's had an offer from Roma to come back this season. He, he, he said, no, I won't come during the season. 
because he's waiting for that big job. He's talked about wanting to coach in other European leagues. Spain is one of those. England is definitely one of those. He spent time in England learning the language in preparation for going to the Premier League. But I think you can only stay out of work for so long when you're a football person and you want to get back in. So the the timing is interesting from Agnelli and what I'm hearing from people close to Allegri is it is possible he will take that job. Would he consider Inter Milan? Yes, absolutely. Um, in fact, he was lined up to replace Antonio Conte in the summer. Um, if you remember, Conte infuriated Inter's owners and, and various that, people. Well, that was my point, Duncan, yeah. Because we know that Conte's got a very fractious relationship. Yes, uh, and Allegri was offered a job in the summer, but they needed Conte to walk away. They couldn't afford to pay Conte off and take on Allegri's wages when they were still paying um, Spalletti, the previous manager, his um, redundancy payments uh, after getting rid of him to bring Conte in. Inter is is a problematic situation because of um, their finances, because Suning have been instructed by the Chinese government to move money out of football because they, mm -hmm. they ran up a huge um, deficit over 100 million euros in their last financial year and expecting another huge deficit this year. We know what Antonio Conte is like. He is very demanding. Um, his target is to win the Champions League. That's He wants to prove himself to be an absolute elite level coach by winning the Champions League at a club. Um, you'd have to say that there is conflict, likely conflict en route if Inter decide to start selling some of their better players and and Romelu Lukaku is being mentioned uh, as, a, as a potential sale in the summer despite the goals he scored, despite being, I think, almost number one choice for Conte when he came to enter the, the player he identified as being most important to to his uh, his plan for the club. So I, it will be interesting again to see what Conte does. If he, if he feels he's achieved what it was expected of him and has done as much as he can in taking the Italian title back to enter and doing it in a comprehensive fashion and thinks actually... I can't win the Champions League the way football is at present and with the support I'm going to get, then yeah, that, that would be a job that would, uh, would also open up in the summer. It's an interesting um, circumstance with regards to what's happening in Serie A. Also the case, Duncan, that there may well be a power shift uh, in terms of what's happening at Wolverhampton Wanderers. And you have some very, very interesting and exclusive news with regards to potential outgoings. Yeah, it has been a very difficult season for, for Wolves. Um, I think central to it has been losing Raul Jimenez early in the season. If you look at uh, the returns of, of the team, their, their leading scorers in the Premier League are Pedro Neto, and Ruben Neves, you know, holding midfielder with five goals each. And then you have Raul Jimenez with four, um, despite only having 10 appearances before he suffered that fractured skull. They've dropped down to 14th in the Premier League after this weekend's results, 35 points from 30 games. Um, 
they need to change their squad. Um, and the information I'm getting is that the the financial backing from Fosun is not as strong as it's been in previous summers. Um, I don't think that is disconnected with what is happening in China, where the as we've talked about Suning, the Chinese government telling Suning to withdraw money from football, and they've they've done it with other major um, industries. Uh, who have invested in football at the behest of the Chinese government. Um, there is now a discouragement from spending money on football. I'm not hearing that Fosun are going to step away um, from Wolves, but I'm hearing that they have to generate their own cash this summer. We, we told you a few weeks ago that Pedro Neto was being made available for sale um, at a substantial price and that, that they felt they could get a good transfer fee for him because there had been interest um, importantly I think from Juventus last summer and a strong offer from Juventus last summer but one that was dependent on uh, performance on the field. I'm, I'm hearing it's not just Pedro Neto that's being made available for sale, it's also Ruben Neves and also Adama Traore. So you, essentially the, the three I think you would say most sellable, most valuable talents on the Wolves squad at present, um, excluding Raul Jimenez, because it's obviously going to be difficult to sell Jimenez until he's uh, come back and started playing again. And Jimenez is, is now pushing towards 30, which again makes the, the value of a transfer more difficult to secure. You know, Adama Traore is 25, he's contracted until 2023. Ruben Neves, 24, contracted until 2023. Pedro Neto, an even stronger position than he's 21, now a full Portugal international and, uh, and contracted until 2025. Um, but they want to sell at least one of those for a substantial fee, perhaps more than one of those, and then reinvest and freshen up the squad. Um, they're particularly focused on looking for wingers and a striker, uh, also possibly to bring a, a midfielder in. Um, but it, they're going to have to generate that cash from their own squad rather than look, um, I'm told, to Fosun to provide more cash to buy players. Um, and they're doing it, as we keep saying, in a difficult, a far more difficult environment to sell than, uh, than this project was designed in and, and where this project has been so, so successful up until this season in terms of picking up those excellent young talents from around European football, a lot of them from Portugal, um, putting them in the Premier League spotlight, seeing their value increase uh, and, uh, and, and having them well coached by Nuno Espirito Santo. And, and I, you know, I think it's also been a difficult season for, for Nuno um, um, and that may also be a complication for Wolves. In the eyes of the Wolves fans, does this um, approach to selling out kill the Wolves' dream? Because it has been an incredible three years for the club um, with regards to results and the way they've been playing football. Um, it's going to be hard to rebuild Duncan with regards to... Um, replacing players because obviously uh, Jogo Jota obviously left for Liverpool as well and it just seemed that um, they might be returning or it looks like they might be returning to a kind of small town 
uh, image uh, of their club rather than being, you know, aspiring to be one of the, the biggest clubs in England, uh, if not Europe, given the the signings they've made and the progress they've made as well. Well, look, they've been very good in the market in the past and there's no reason why they shouldn't be good in the market going forward. They haven't lost that ability to um, select the right talents to bring into the club who can increase in value. Uh, I think it's more about generating some capital to be able to sign some of those players. And, and I would imagine they're thinking, well, we know that the clubs we usually buy from are struggling with COVID as well. So if we can get money for Neto, Traore or Neves, um, then we can buy at a cheaper price the uh, the targets we want to come in and, and allow them to develop. I think, I think with Traore and Neves, you've also got to be aware that they have been talked about as moving out of this club for some time now. Ruben Neves was a target for Manchester City. There was a point at which Wolves were valuing him at 100 million euros. Adama Traore just last season was valued by Wolves at one point or by Fosun at 150 million euros. So these players have, have gone through a period in which they are being talked about as moving to bigger clubs and moving to Champions League clubs. So, so in a sense... If you are going to sell, pick the players who've got the high valuations and the ones who mentally are, are in a place where they, they feel it's time to move on in their career. Um, Wolves have this season had discussions with Traore about a new contract, but from what I understand, the numbers they're offering him are way below what he would expect to receive given um, his status he achieved in the game last season. He's not on a particularly um, rich contract at present. So I, I don't think it's the end of the, of the dream for Wolves. Um, and I think they still retain a lot of the, the qualities uh, that have got them into this position. And if they can use the market well for themselves again, there's no reason why they can't build a squad that can be highly competitive in the Premier League again. I suspect, Duncan, we will see quite a lot of uh, transfer action at Wolves in the summer, certainly if they manage to sell some of those players. This is the first Transfer Window podcast of the week, which of course means it's time for Hero and Villain. And I'm very pleased to say, as I mentioned before, Brighton being my local team, that Duncan has selected, a, a, well, I'm not sure if he has or not, <laughs> <laughs> Mike Dean <laughs> did not give a penalty for Brighton against Manchester United, but I suspect he's going to disappoint me and give, and give us someone else. Well, look, Mike Dean and uh, the video assistant referee in that game have to be very strong candidate for uh, Villain of the Week given that it was a clear penalty offence. Harry Maguire not challenging for the ball, takes Danny Welbeck out a few yards from goal just as he's going to shoot. It's you know one of the best chances you can have to score in a game. It's 1-1, that goes in, it's 2-1. The decision that they should have been making there was whether it was a denial of a clear goal-scoring opportunity and conceding a penalty without challenging properly for the ball, therefore penalty and red card to Harry Maguire. 
instead um, Dean, I think, look, there's a degree of excuse because he only gets one view at it and he's looking at it from behind. So he's the one who has the bigger get out and that he might not have seen it properly. But the VAR did see it properly. And at the very least, under the, the protocol that the Premier League's been working on at present, that should be referred to Dean to have a look at the screen to give himself time to think to look at the other angles and decide whether he'd made a mistake instead he doesn't Brighton lose to Manchester United for the second time this season um, because of VAR decisions remember famously that uh, Manchester United won a game in which Brighton hit the woodwork a, a record number of times five times outplayed Manchester United in that game much as they outplayed Manchester United for a good period of the first half at Old Trafford at the weekend um, yet have a penalty given against them after the final whistle goes so that's you know that's four points from VAR decisions um, switching from Brighton to Manchester United just in one season but villain of the week I am going to go for Jose Mourinho um, what? For his, uh, excuse me while I check if hell is frozen over. For his, uh, his, his comment when he was asked about, I think quite cleverly um, by a BBC journalist, that uh, your, your team used to specialise in closing out one goal leads in games. Um, what's gone wrong with Tottenham? And his response was same coach, different players. Now, factually, he's correct. Um, and there is a clear problem with Tottenham's defence and they make a huge number of uh, unforced individual errors that have been costing Tottenham points all season. But I don't think he does himself any favours with that comment. Um, if it was another manager, it wouldn't be picked on to the same level. Um, we see articles from very prominent people in football talking about how Mourinho could learn a lesson in man management from basically every other manager and the coach and, and holding Luke Shaw out as an example, quite ironic given what we've been saying about Jesse Lingard um, earlier in this podcast. Um, when Mourinho says these things, they get, it gets picked up on in a way it doesn't with any other manager. It gives his players, some of whom he has um, stretched to the limit that's his coaching style is to push his players but it gives them those ones that are unhappy with them the opportunity to grumble it puts extra pressure on him puts extra pressure on the club puts pressure on Daniel Levy to change the manager at the end of the season with a lot of the supporters calling for that Mourinho is aware that his position at the club is in jeopardy he's doing everything he can uh, to qualify them for Europe to win the League Cup to get the best finish possible he doesn't want to leave the club and you know we saw how he talked about his, his sabbatical time in uh, after being sacked by Manchester United and how he had to reconsider elements of his management and I think it's pretty obvious that one of the things he, he felt he had to reconsider is the way he talked about players in public interviews he's actually tried to be very controlled in those interviews in a number of difficult scenarios for Tottenham during his period there but he can't keep it under control throughout the entire time and then this you know one throwaway comment which is factually accurate um, 
makes it more difficult for him, I think, to, to get the results he needs. So, villain of the week, Jose Mourinho. Excuse me while I faint, uh, listeners, um, but uh, in the interests of the podcast, I will continue. Um, <laughs> I have two heroes, given that Duncan's given, given us two villains. Um, my first is uh, Football Club de Valencia for walking off the pitch um, on Sunday uh, when one of their players, Mukhtar Diagabi, uh, was allegedly racially abused by Cadiz's Juan Kaya. And uh, the referee has since confirmed that he received a complaint about that. And I think we all um, need to support uh, that particular uh, incident with regards to trying to stamp out racism in football. My second... And this will probably go quite down quite well, Duncan, with you, uh, as well as because of your villain of Jose Mourinho. It's Sam Allardyce for his 5 2 mm. win at Stamford Bridge um, with his West Brom side. Um, incredible. Uh, I mean, they played great football. Uh, Robinson's goal was one of the best of the season in terms of his volley. Uh, just sensational, and uh, it, yeah, it was just Aldous's post-match interview. If you didn't see it, look at the off the uh, camera footage about him laughing when he comes in to say, "I never thought I'd be standing here telling you that um, my team had uh, won this game by five goals," which. <laughs> To be fair, it's probably quite accurate, Duncan. Has uh, has Tam Tuchel asked for a loan of the Ford Granada yet? <laughs> I think uh, Big Sam was... I mean, I might be firing the, the, the Granada up, actually, to go see him. <laughs> but, uh, yes, it was, uh, it was quite a weekend of Premier League football, which I'm sure you all enjoyed. Um... This has been, of course, the news before it becomes news. We're very grateful to Sanko Patak, um, our young listener from Mumbai, who pointed that out. And my best wishes go to him as well as Duncan's. And uh, you can catch up with us. Uh, if you like the podcast, please share, like, rate and review. Uh, on all social media platforms. Uh, it's at Transfer Podcast on Instagram, on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, please engage with us uh, individually as well if you would like to with at Duncan Castles on Twitter and at Garbo SJ for me. We'll be back with you later this week. Until then, uh, we say... Stay well, be safe, thanks for listening.